You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning. I don't think it's out of line to say Happy Thanksgiving once again. I hope that uh, you've had some time with family and friends, enjoyed some good food. I hope that uh, besides eating um, turkey and dressing and ham and mac and cheese and dressing and all this stuff, pie, watching your blood sugar, um, all the stuff uh, that uh, is a part of our celebration. I hope that you took the time to pause uh, and reflect upon the goodness of God and his faithfulness as we just sang uh, through the ages even in that first song. Uh, Some of us have been through a few more ages than others uh, now, and so uh, you have an even uh, richer, deeper perspective on the faithfulness of God over the years, uh, and we should be mindful of that all the time. Well, we're in John chapter 10 this morning, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to John chapter 10. Um, uh, After this Sunday, we plan to take a brief pause for uh, a Christmas series that will start next week, Lord willing, and then we'll return to John's gospel. Uh, Today, we're going to wrap up chapter 10, and, um, you know, some things just divide people. We live in a divisive time, especially over the last four years. It just, it blows my mind to think that we are now nearing the four-year mark of COVID, 2020. Remember that, like, that came in the spring? It's like, uh, it's mind-boggling to me, but uh, one of the things that that season did, and really since that time... Uh, is it highlighted for us just how divisive things can be. Um, and, in, and sometimes it's in ways that go beyond reason or evidence or uh, calm rationality. Um, you know, some people prefer the designated hitter in baseball while others do not. And uh, they can get pretty passionate in uh, arguing their case for one or the other. Some people I uh, think that instant replay is really good in sports, while other people think it's ridiculous and it slows down the flow of the game. Uh, some people are a little bit country, and others are a little bit rock and roll. And some of you are old enough to understand that reference to Donnie Marie Osmond, right? Don't even get me started about politics. Uh, and I have a suspicion that there are some of you this morning, uh, your shin is still hurting because you received a swift kick under the Thanksgiving table because you started a political conversation at your family's Thanksgiving gathering, uh, which is never a wise idea, at least in most of our families anyway. Uh, And the interesting thing is that religious people uh, seem to be especially adept at uh, at division. Uh, Sometimes our arguments get even more passionate when we are firmly convinced that God is on our side uh, of an issue, uh, of a debate. And as prone to argument uh, as we humans can be, I think it's helpful for us to step back uh, and to get some perspective. And while many issues carry little eternal significance, like the designated hitter, for example, there are other issues that really are so crucial as to be legitimate dividing lines. The most centrally important point of division, the one that really matters most in the end, over and above every other thing, is where we stand with Jesus. Do we accept his words and his claims, 
trusting him as Savior, worshiping him as our Lord, or are we reluctant or refusing to embrace him? Today we see another place in the Gospel of John where deep division arose over the words of Jesus and his claims. And the division was at times relatively mild. Like one of those that we might have today where we would say, well, let's just, we're just going to agree to disagree. And sometimes it would appear that way here, uh, resulting in some maybe heated debate and some questioning. But at other times, it rose to a more uh, intense level of hostility, complete with opponents of Jesus picking up rocks to stone him to death. So looking closely at what caused these divisions and how Jesus responded to them can, I think, help us understand our own hearts and the divisions over Jesus that persist even in our world today. So we're going to actually back up just a little bit this morning. Uh, Last week we went down through verse number uh, 30, uh, 30, I guess it was. Today I want us to back up for the sake of context. If you weren't here last week, I want you to understand what this division was all about. And so we're actually going to back up to verse number 19, and we're going to cover through the end of this 10th chapter uh, this morning. So in verse number 19 of John chapter 10, it says, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Now that would tell us this is not the first time. Okay, it says, There was again a division. Many of them said, he, was a de- he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember, they're still referencing the man that was healed uh, of his blindness, a man born blind in John chapter 9 there. And so in verse 22 it says, at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So based upon the context of that conversation between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders, we're told in verse number 31, the Jews picked up stones again, again, this is not the first time, again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But I do them, even though you do not believe me. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. 
And so as we, we back up just a little bit, I want us to look at verses 19 through 21. And I want you to notice the division over the words of Jesus. This first division came in verses 19 through 21 there when it says there was again a division among the Jews because of his words. So Jesus' powerful teaching uh, here in John chapter 10 on himself as the good shepherd, you can imagine it didn't sit well with these religious leaders. They found it uh, downright offensive. And so you can imagine what some of them are thinking. Who does this guy think he is? Uh, How could he refer to himself as the good shepherd over God's sheep? How could he consistently refer to God as my father? And and what were these strange words he was saying about laying down his life only so that he can take it up again? What kind of a, a person speaks this way? So some of those who listened to Jesus seemed pretty convinced that such words could not be said by someone who had it all together upstairs. So they judged this itinerant rabbi as being a few fish and loaves short of a picnic lunch, right? He has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? This is ridiculous. Others were not so convinced that Jesus' words uh, were that of of an insane individual. Uh, While they were unusual, they were unprecedented, they still didn't sound anything like the words of a deranged, demon-possessed lunatic. And besides, they couldn't deny the reality of what Jesus had done. What many of them had witnessed with their own eyes, it seemed impossible that a demon could or would ever open the eyes of a blind man, especially one who was born blind. And so notice how even in this earthly division, this, this, this division and debate, the words of Jesus are inseparably linked to the works of Jesus. And that's, in, that's significant. If you just took Jesus' words by themselves and you had no miraculous works done by him, it does become easier to dismiss him as some sort of an egomaniac, lunatic, or something like that. And so we can see this same linkage, actually, we're going to pause for a moment for a little church history lesson, we might say. You see the same linkage in a pattern of skepticism that actually emerged within the church in the 1800s and continued into the 1900s. So in the 1800s, many Bible scholars from mainline Protestant uh, churches in Europe, especially in Germany, uh, accepted this scientific skepticism that dismissed Jesus' miraculous works as impossible. They said they were, they were fabrications of the early church, suited for only the most gullible, pre-scientific, ancient world, clearly out of step with what they viewed as their enlightened scientific society. In other words, they had, they had reached some kind of new level of knowledge that could easily dismiss uh, the, the record of his miraculous works. And so these ideas actually made their way then into many mainline American uh, Protestant churches and seminaries in the early 1900s, including uh, one of those early American seminaries, Princeton Theological Seminary, which is uh, really anything but a biblical seminary uh, in our day. But soon... These seminaries, pastors, they were denying that Jesus performed any miracles, uh, including rising from the dead and denied that he was uh, born of a virgin, for example. And so once the supernatural works of Jesus were dismissed from uh, what they would describe as respectable academic church circles, then what was next? What was next, as you can imagine, is they began systematically attacking his words. 
And after all, if Jesus didn't do the miraculous things that the Gospels record of him, then how could he have made the bold statements that the Gospels record? This kind of thing is still happening today. I can list uh, half a dozen uh, college students uh, who've grown up in the churches that I've pastored, grew up in our youth groups, went off to university only to reach back out through an email or through a phone call and say, hey, I I don't know what to do with this, but one of my professors just told me that the Gospels are not even reliable. Like they're just a bunch of fables that have been passed down orally from generation to generation. And so uh, immediately they were met with this same type of criticism. Well, these efforts... They actually kind of culminated in the establishment of what was known at the time, as some of you remember this, the Jesus Seminar in 1985. Uh, When a kid named Mike Lovely was just graduating from high school, this thing was ramping up. And so what what happened was there was this group of like 50 or so uh, so so-called Bible scholars from leading academic institutions. And among other things, this Jesus Seminar... Uh, what it accomplished, what they did was they judged the recorded sayings of Jesus from the Gospels and concluded that most of them were false. They were fabricated by the early church. And so in the end, uh, these so-called scholars who professed to be Christians, oddly enough, who professed to love Jesus, what they did is they wanted to to recreate Jesus into a non-miraculous, dead first-century rabbi who taught love and peace and forgiveness and was so badly misunderstood by his closest followers that they transformed him into a divine figure after his death and began worshiping him. In other words... Yeah, we'll say that Jesus was a good man, he was a good teacher, he taught great things, he taught great moral truth, but his early followers were so disillusioned that they had to make up all these things about Jesus. They had to make him like some kind of a divine figure and worship him. The world has always been divided over the question of who Jesus was and is, and what he said, and what he did. And what difference his person and work make to our lives and to our world today. And so sadly, sometimes that division has even become violent. So again, I want to reiterate, when we talk about dividing over things, again, most of those things, super insignificant, all right? But when you're talking about something that really truthfully divides us, that becomes most important, it's over what we believe about Jesus, who Jesus is. And so I want you to notice as we continue in the text here, we skip down now to verses 31 to 33. And I want you to notice the hostility against the claims of Jesus. So they didn't just mildly disagree. Okay, this was not just a, a mental thing. I mean, it became physical. Uh, and have you ever been in one of those kinds of disagreements where it's like, man, this is, this is getting chippy, right? I mean, this is about to get physical. People are starting to, to physically put their hands on one another, that kind of thing. And so the reaction of many to Jesus' good shepherd teaching was to just dismiss it. Um, derision, you might say. But the reaction to his bold, his clear, his shocking statement, and we saw it right there in verse number 30, I and the Father are one. That was considered scandalous. That, it was, their reaction to that was not so mild. John says in, in verse 31, then the Jews picked up stones against, uh, again to stone him. I mean, this was the way that they took care of this kind of thing in that day. And so now this is the third time that we're told in John's gospel that the Jewish leadership's uh, intent was, was to take his life, was murderous. 
uh, each one follows, you'll notice, a strong claim of divinity on the part of Jesus. The first came, if you'll remember, after Jesus heals a paralytic in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. We were there a number of weeks ago, where it says, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, it says, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The second time comes in John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. It says there, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, remember this, before Abraham was, I am. A bold identity statement. That caught their attention to be sure. So they picked up stones, it says there, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we see this escalation in the rising conflict here, all centered around Jesus' claims. Jesus says, my father's been working until now and I am working. It leads the Jewish leaders to seek to kill him. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This leads them to actually pick up stones to throw at him. Jesus leaves before they can take action. Now, Jesus says, I and the father are one. And they pick up stones again to throw at him. This time, Jesus doesn't immediately slip away. But he stays and he engages them in discussion over what he has said. Two things become abundantly clear. Jesus is claiming to be divine. Okay, Don't don't ever let anybody tell you that you will find nowhere in Scripture that Jesus claims to be divine. Okay, You can point right here. Certainly Jesus is claiming to be divine and this is deeply offensive to these Jewish leaders. So if Jesus' words and teachings in general are regarded as the the babblings of some sort of a demon-possessed madman, then you can know that his claims about who he is in relation to God are even worse. They are considered blasphemy and in their mind a call for the death penalty. And in the moment, they're ready to to take matters into their own hands, literally. They're, They're ready to stone him. But I want you to notice Jesus' response, and most importantly, the phrase that we find here in verses 34 and 35 that tells us, the scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus responds to this murderous mob by challenging them to clarify their charges against him. This is something that he had done before, okay? He asked them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Uh, from from, from, From which of them or for which of them are you going to stone me? Okay, in other words, for, for what is it that you're really putting me on trial right now? For what are, the, what are the charges that you're bringing against me? He reminds them that he has not only done many works, but they have been good works. And he tells them that they have been works from the Father. So which works are so offensive to them? It's like, what is it that I've done that so offends you? That I, that I gave a, blind, a man born blind his sight? Do you find that offensive? I, I heal the paralytic man? Does that, is that what offends you? Of course, Jesus knew that it was not his works, uh, but, but his words which offended them. But he said this to, to, to get them to stop, to make them think, to make them articulate their charges. And so they respond, it is not for any good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, let that sink in for just a moment. 
Is it not fascinating that these religious leaders have gotten things exactly backwards? It's not that Jesus is a man who is making himself to be God. He is actually the eternal son of God who became man. But they've got it all mixed up. So to answer their charges of blasphemy, Jesus then turns the tables on them quickly. And he quotes scripture from Psalm chapter 82. Notice what it says there in verses 34 and 35. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? And this is where he begins to quote a bit. He says, I said, you you are gods. So if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, he says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. So at first, this might not seem like a a very convincing argument. And, And it's actually not intended to be. You see, the purpose of this argument is to diffuse the situation and to provide the beginning of a response to the charges of blasphemy. So Jesus, again, is quoting from Psalm chapter 82, verses 6 through 8, where it says this. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Little g gods, you'll notice. It says in verse, uh, verse 7 there of Psalm chapter 82, Nevertheless, like men, you shall die, you're mere mortals, and, shall, uh, and, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And so God is here judging his people for their refusal to heed his word. And Jesus' point in the moment here is this. Even in the context of judging his people for their disregard for his word, God reminds them of who they are. They, they, they are individuals. It, it, it can be confusing because the, the, the word gods is used here, little g gods, sons of the most high. In other words, you are made in the image of God and are his offspring. In other words, you're special. You're a special creation, even though they're guilty and will die in judgment. So if God can use language like this about his sinful, rebellious people then... How much more is it appropriate for Jesus to call himself the Son of God? Since he was actually sent by God into the world, not as the one who receives God's word, but as the very word made flesh, the word sent forth, the word of God. And so what he's doing here is something that was very common in that day. This is a type of argumentation called the how much more type of argumentation. From the lesser to the greater, a very common form of argumentation in the ancient world. And so Jesus' hearers would have understood his point very well. If they were going to stone him for blasphemy, what would they say about the language of God's very word? The scriptures, which cannot be broken, which is also, by the way, their, na- their national law. It's be quoted from the Old Testament. So in other words, a violent attack on Jesus for his words would also be an attack on the scriptures. Their scriptures, in fact. This would be unacceptable. And so this makes them stop and think and prepares them for the next thing that Jesus says, which is the real argument that he wants to advance here. So stay with me. Notice the works cannot be denied. Now, not only can scripture not be broken, But Jesus' works cannot be denied. So he says in verses 37 and 38, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. 
But if I do, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the logic of Jesus' argument here is pretty irrefutable. He has done such great and good works that they must be the works of God. Even some among them are willing to admit this was not something, these were not things that could be done by a demon or some sort of demon-possessed man. They were intrigued at the very least. Uh, Maybe seekers, we would call them today. They are of such greatness and goodness that they can't be rightly attributed to anyone other than God. And so Jesus essentially says, don't take my word for it. Look at the evidence of my works. Some of you probably heard the saying, it's just sometimes said of a a wannabe uh, farmer or rancher. He's all hat and no cow, right? All hat, you've heard that before? That's That's another way of saying this person's all talk. Uh, but no action, okay? There's no reality to what they're saying. Um, you know, you remember uh, when you were a kid, you had show and tell, right? You'd come to school and you had to bring an object, something, and you had to show it to your classmates and talk about it, explain it to them. Uh, and so that, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, okay, don't, don't, don't just take my word for it. I want you to look at the clear evidence of what you've actually seen with your eyes. It's pretty amazing. Look at the evidence of my works. And this open display of verifiable, irrefutable miracles is what separates Jesus from every other religious leader the world has ever known. You take just two or three, for example. Joseph Smith says that he found golden tablets of the Book of Mormon, translated them using divine assistance. No one outside of his family ever saw these golden tablets, and Joseph Smith never did any miraculous things for people to see. So we're essentially supposed to just take his word for it, right? You take Muhammad. Claims that God led him to write down the Quran in a cave. Only his brother witnessed any of this, and Muhammad never did any kind of verifiable miracle. So again, we're just supposed to take his word for it. The Buddha, the enlightened one, says that he was given a great insight into the nature of reality and the source of human suffering. Again, no verifiable miracles. We're just supposed to accept his word. But when God speaks, he gives confirmation. In the Old Testament, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, the people could see the pillar of smoke and fire and could witness the trembling of the mountain. When Jesus spoke as the word of God, he healed a man who who had been publicly living as a paralytic beggar for 38 years. He fed 5,000 plus people with one boy's small lunch. He healed a man who had been known to have been born blind. These are not secret miracles that Jesus did in in, in excluded from from society. They're not not the kind of miracles that can be faked or, or show like some sort of a huckster faith healer in our day. Jesus did works that cannot be denied without violating all standards for evidence and reason. And so to deny Jesus, you would have to first deny his works. So Jesus' defense of himself was irrefutable. Which is why the attacks on Jesus from modern skeptics, they start by doing what? Trying to deny his miracles. So as we approach the Christmas season and we talk about the virgin birth, some people would say, is that really an essential doctrine? Is that really essential to our understanding of Scripture and the very nature of God? Absolutely it's essential. Absolutely it's essential. 
No escaping the logic of this whole situation. So let, me, let, me, let me put it in terms that hopefully you can understand right now. We have only three options as we look at the text here. The gospel writers were liars and fabricated Jesus' miracles, as the Jesus seminar would, uh, would suggest. And, and so since they were martyred for their testimony, that also means that not only they lied, but they were willing to die in defense of a lie. Number two... Jesus was, in fact, a con artist who fooled them into thinking that he had done miracles when, in fact, he had not. This means that he also would have had to fake his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And since the resurrection is the central miracle of the apostles' testimony, it too would have to be discredited. Or number three, Jesus did the miracles recorded in the Gospels, including the resurrection And thus he is the son of God and only savior for sinners. Then I want you to notice as we close out this chapter that Christ's kingdom cannot be arrested. Okay, that that kind of language has been used as we we make our way toward what, what we'll find in John's gospel here is what we call the passion of Christ. His final days here on this earth, his suffering, his death. And simply because the logic is irrefutable doesn't mean that people must believe. You see, the sinful condition of the human heart includes a stubborn refusal to submit to God and is, uh, to to what he is, who he is, and and what he has revealed about his son. So the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus' airtight argument by seeking to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him, it says. But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. But here's, as we continue to read, listen to this. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now does that remind you of what John told us in John chapter 20 when he gives us really his his purpose statement for writing this entire book? I'm writing these things so that you might believe. You might believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we're seeing that actually come to fruition here. So the only thing more persistent than the stubbornness of the sinful human heart is the sovereign grace of God. Demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. They seek to arrest him again, just as they had done in John chapter 8. But this time, we're told here again, the time had not yet come. We continue to see that leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Not yet. Not yet. Not, no, not, not, not yet. The time had not yet come. He, it was not yet Passover. So it was not yet time for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. Jesus then escapes from their hands. And, 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 and you'll notice here, the retreat of Jesus from the Jerusalem area was not a defeat. Huh. No, his kingdom went, went on the advance in a different direction. So John tells us that he went across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the beginning of John's gospel, and he stayed there. And by the way, the place where Jesus goes is probably Bethany beyond the Jordan. And when he, he returns in John chapter 11, which we'll return to after the holidays, uh, for the raising of Lazarus, it, it, it is at Bethany, we're told. Okay, the Bethany that is near Jerusalem. And so while he was there across the Jordan, we're told here by John, that people came to him. 
Many of the people who had seen him do many works, these good works, those who knew that his words were not the words of a demon-possessed man, those who knew that his works could not be the works of a demon, these people went across the Jordan, came to Jesus at Bethany beyond the Jordan, and coming to him, John tells us, they believed in him there and found salvation. This is the advancement of the kingdom of God. This is amazing what's happening here. So these closing verses, I want you to understand, they are not just some irrelevant postscript to this chapter or just some transition to chapter 11. This is incredibly significant. They are the demonstration of Jesus' very teaching about himself as the good shepherd. So you talk about a show and tell. Jesus had told them he was the good shepherd. Now you're going to see it demonstrated in, in living color, right? In living color, you're going to see it. This is precisely what happens in this chapter. Jesus comes into the vicinity of Jerusalem. He speaks the truth about himself, and then he withdraws. His sheep know his voice to be the voice of their good shepherd, and they follow him, finding faith and salvation in him. So again, I want to ask you what we've been asking throughout this chapter. What about you. This needs to be much more than just a historical look at John chapter 10. What about you? Are you stubbornly denying the reality of the works and the words of Jesus? Are you foolishly remaining in your rebellion and in your sin? Or do you hear the voice of your good shepherd? And are you coming to him for eternal life? Trusting him for eternal life. This is the only division that really matters forever. It's the only division about which we can truthfully say this is a matter of life and death. Will you deny Jesus or follow him and receive eternal life? So if we could for just a moment bow our heads together. As we prepare this morning for the Lord's Supper, you may be new to First Baptist, may be visiting today, and we want you to understand that um, it's not important to us to uh, for you to to receive the Lord's Supper today. That you be a member of First Baptist Church. What is important to us is that your testimony be one of faith in Jesus Christ, because of what this meal represents. You'll be given further instruction in that. But again, the question that rings from this text is, what do you believe about Jesus? Maybe you find yourself mentally where some of these early religious leaders were. They're ready to acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher, a good moral figure, certainly not the Son of God the Lamb of God, the Messiah. So if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to take that step of faith, just acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and you can't save yourself. So you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. We'd love to share with you from God's word. Love to pray with you. Love to talk with you more about the claims of Christ. 
his work, his ministry, what he came to accomplish on our behalf. Father, we thank you for your word today, for the clarity of your word. And I pray, God, that you would continue to work in hearts and lives as your kingdom continues to to grow. God, we still look forward to all that you have in store, to that future consummation when all things will be made new. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've made on our behalf. Help us, Lord, now to remember that in this time of worship. We love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.